Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct the Podcast. It takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Gone Girl is the movie we watched this week. Levi, tell us about Gone Girl. I'm going to give you a synopsis that's straight from yourself. I got this text at 9.26 p.m. Dude, this movie is fucked up. And I loved it. And I love that that was the text I got after you watched it. Eric, you have not seen this movie before, correct? Oh, I saw it in the theater, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So this, I thought this was a natural. It was a natural thing. You... <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't send you that after. I sent you that during my viewing. What, what scene were you on when you really decided, you know what, this is, on I, second viewing, this is still as rough as it was the first time? It was actually, I don't know, it was much more interesting the sec, uh, during the second viewing. Um, it was, it was after she came back, I think. So it was it was really toward the end of the movie, but I was just like, I cannot believe this film. It is just crazy, man. It's bonkers. I think after we talked about the ending of Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, how there is kind of that coda at the end. Yeah. This was real like Fincher took what he learned from that and and in in the ways it's you know, he's following the books in both instances. But I think he's developed a good rhythm for it. And this really, like, you think the movie's over and it just rolls on. <laughs> the, the crazy train just does yeah. not stop. <laughs> I do think this movie could have been like 20 minutes to a half hour shorter. I don't think that this movie really earned its two and a half hour runtime. I think it could have, there were moments that could be tightened up. But, yeah. you know, honestly, I enjoy, I like the pace. The pace is the right. It's slow enough to be properly creepy. I don't. Uh-huh. I don't know that I have better words to to put to it. But yeah. uh, the pacing of this film is great. I think it it really has kind of three stages, and all of them are even on second viewing. Just watching the story unravel is so yeah. satisfying and so surprising because there's not really a a down moment. You don't have time to ever catch your breath because you are unfolding some other strange atrocity that is occurring in this <laughs> weird suburb. Yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting uh, watching it a second time. You know, he's Fincher basically has three twist movies. He's got uh fight club, which is a mm-hmm. big twist movie. Um, or maybe it was just fight club is what I wrote down. Yeah. But Oh, I guess Seven. Seven's also kind of a twist yep. movie, but not really. It's, uh, it's they're th- really charged thrillers. Yeah, but the but like real big twists. Mm-hmm. I mean, Fight Club is probably one of the biggest twists in movie history. Yeah, uh, and Gone Girl is interesting in the way that it handles the twist because the twist comes about an hour into the movie. Yeah, um, and. You know, obviously him realize or the audience realizing that she's actually alive allows Fincher the time and the space to paint a villain, which he hasn't really done. I mean, yeah. we've had some really good villains. We had Kevin Spacey in Seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had uh, last week we had, um, oh, what's the guy's name? The Swedish guy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> the, Swede. The, the Swedish dude from Thor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in in the girl with the dragon tattoo um but these villains are always kind of just kind of revealed at the end they they just kind of appear out of nowhere even tyler durden he appears out of nowhere um we well, do he get doesn't the, his what? twist is the becoming the villain too yeah in yeah, a lot of ways it is uh i mean in in panic room we get a good sense of the villains mm-hmm. um and he does, he paints a really really good villain in that film um in uh who's a country music guy Dwight Yoakam Yeah, Dwight Yoakam. Dwight Yoakam's a, a crazy villain in that one. I mean and and uh you know Forrest Whitaker also does a great job in that one because he becomes a sympathetic villain. Um but in this one I really feel like we get the time to flesh out this villain because I I feel like this is one of the greatest villains 
in in movie history. And it's a really tall thing to say because this movie's only two years old. But the depiction of Amy in this, she is like one of the most psychopathic people I've ever seen on screen. She is so justified as a character. They do such Mm -hmm. a... And it's the advantage that I think when you talk about twists especially, I think Seven does deserve to be in there in a little in a way because Kevin Spacey reveals himself similar to Amy. We get the Mm -hmm. villain before the movie is over, before the climax, the villain essentially appears of their own volition, wherein you get a lot of you know, especially comic we get so many comic book movies, the villain is typically come upon while they're in the midst of their dastardly plan. Mm -hmm. This one, Amy is so ahead of the curve at every step, it is right. frightening. And my, I have the same thing in my notes about the villain. I think this is the villain we needed for Batman v Superman. Because <laughs> well, watching her scare the shit out of Ben Affleck was yeah. super satisfying. Way better than the villains depicted in that movie. Yeah, well, they're completely different movies, but yeah. I, I see what you're saying. I mean, a villain a villain is an interesting thing on on film, and I think the, there is something to be said about the comic booking of villains uh, over time, mm-hmm. and it's great to see a villain that is so smart. I mean, we talked about it during the Tarantino run. One thing that Tarantino really likes to do is put somebody in his films who is smarter than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And when he does that with, um, oh Christoph gosh, Waltz. yeah, Christoph Waltz, but I forget what his character's name is now. Like oh, I said, I'm, all I can think of is Odell. That was the one that yeah. I was chambering as well. Yeah, Ordell, yeah, Ordell, Ordell from uh, Jackie Brown is kind of in that boat. Although Jackie really does outsmart him, I think Jackie's the smartest person in the room mm-hmm. uh, in that one. Um, and King Schultz is the smartest guy in the room in Django, but he's he does that as a heroic character. But uh, yeah, Christoph Waltz as the Nazi, uh, the Jew hunter is what he's called. Uh, in the film is such a great villain because he is he's so smart he's a step ahead of everybody else he's he's like hexalingual he can speak any language (laughs) and understand the nuances of the accents in the native tongue um Mm. he's just a genius and these are the great villains these are the great great villains like um, even, you know, when you think back to comic books, probably the greatest villain depicted on screen is Heath Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Same type of thing. He is a step ahead of everybody in a wild card type of way. Um, but he knows Batman inside and out. He knows exactly what's going to pull his strings. He knows how to pull the strings of the underground. He takes control of Gotham uh, while at the same time being completely chaotic evil. Um, these are the types of villains that are so interesting when they're really, really smart and they're a step ahead of everybody else. Um, you know, there's so, something satisfying about that because you, and it's not like we go into a movie typically thinking that the protagonist is truly in danger, right? But there's something satisfying about a villain that is smart enough to. It's the willful suspension of disbelief. We require a higher level intelligence villain now to suspend our disbelief that the hero is really in any danger. Yeah. And Amy is absolutely that 110%. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah I, I think that he might still be in danger. Oh, absolutely. Hans Landa. I had it right in my mind. I should have said it. Landa. Oh. That's, that's Christoph Waltz's name. <laughs> but this is the thing I love is that these villains, they're so smart they're so conniving that you almost have to respect them, but you hate them so much. You hate the, every fiber of their being. And they earn the vitriol of the audience. And that is something that is so... It's really rare in cinema. One of the things that we talk about, if you want to go back to the superherofication of films, is that Marvel has had... While it's had a very successful run of superhero movies, it has had such a hard time... Uh, developing an iconic villain outside of Loki. Like, yeah. Loki is pretty much the only villain. And in he the Marvel is one cinema. of the, the outsmarters. He is. Yep. And, you know, not to mm-hmm. the degree that we get with Hans Lond or Amy, but mm-hmm. in the Marvel universe, for sure, right. he is. And ultimately, they 
you know, spoiler alert, but he stays ahead of, a step ahead of Thor in all of the movies, which yep. I think is satisfying. And he has motivation. The motivate motivation is convincing. And that in some ways, I think it goes typically goes hand in hand in writing a good, intelligent villain is if mm-hmm. you are intelligent, your motive has to be super crystal clear a dumb villain you can give them very simple motivations and i think a lot of writers sort of accept that as you know that's fine with them but i think for a good writer and a a lot of this praise should be heaped on the author who i don't have gillian flynn yeah gillian gillian or gillian i'm going with gillian because of uh gillian i can't remember from x terrible terrible (laughs) no gillian from uh from uh, Community. She's one of the... Gillian Jacobs, I think, is her name? Gotcha. Well, anyway. Gillian Flint, I mean, this... I have not read the book, but it's still on my list of must-reads. Because I would love yeah. to see the... Adap- We've talked about adaptation with Fincher, and I'm mm-hmm. really curious where this diverges and where it clings really verbatim to the to the book. And everything I've heard appears that, you know, this is a... a adaptation of really strong source material well but the adapted screenplay was written by the author of the book which probably helps a lot yeah that uh, <laughs> that should help some <laughs> you know i don't know that the strongest game of thrones episodes are written by george r, r. martin though does he actually I, write them he does write a couple sorry for being so, a member of the baldu family i am severely that's your another blind OT. spot literacy yeah. and Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, but I do think, you know, coming back to it, we're having this conversation about villains, but I feel like Amy really does secure her place. And that's one of the things about it. You talk about clear motivation. I don't know if the motivation is clear on these villains. We talk about them. I mean, Loki's got a super clear motivation. He's really jealous of Thor because he's an adopted brother of Odin and he was never really, Odin, he's never really sees himself fully as Odin's son, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. That was pretty clear. But we talk about Hans Landa. What is his motivation? He's just kind of a psycho. He just wants to be on the winning side. He wants to be on the winning side, but he's like, he just kind of does it for fun, which is the most devious and gross part about his character. (laughs) And the same thing with the Joker. And kind of the same thing with Amy. I mean, we do get the motivation. She's amazing Amy. She... Uh, lived her whole life with her parents turning her failures into best-selling novels <laughs> or best-selling Which children's would turn books. Anybody into a killer, I imagine. Well, it's this idea of she is supposed to be this ideal woman, and she can never live up to that because uh, the these these there is an ideal version of her that is fictional and is unreal. So she has like this this unreal. Uh, model that she has to live up to at all times. You know, even when they go and Amazing Amy gets married, she's got to go to the party and talk to the press about it. Like, that's so weird. Why would she Why would she talk to the press? Like, there's a disconnect here. People know that she's not actually a, you know, a person being drawn on the page here. There is a disconnect. Um, so when she finds herself in a less than ideal marriage, she sees it as a betrayal of her destiny that's been established by her parents i mean in some ways this isn't this is a conversation about how your parents can really fuck you up <laughs> you know yeah it's there's a sort of rashomon-esque and we had that in another movie where i'm trying to think of which fincher movie it was where we get the three sort of storylines and none of them uh, coincide this is what happens when we get to the end of the season we're yeah. trying to pull things from i believe that was on. zodiac wasn't it uh no it was a social it was a social network social network um but we're getting really unreliable narratives from everybody Mm -hmm. i mean even uh ben affleck's character who's generally we're the protagonist we're frequently seeing things through his eyes he is deceptive he is using his charm as a mask he is his twin sister clearly does not know as much as she thinks she does with his Mm -hmm. infidelities. I mean, nobody is telling a true story and that's kind of what makes it really compelling Mm -hmm. because you're trying, you want, you're trying to find what is, and even when we get to the end and they're having the kid, you know, that's a, it's just the layers getting. So we are getting to the limbo level of inception (laughs) because they keep doubling down (laughs) 
Well, and that's the idea here. Is it's another Tarantinoism almost? Is that you know what Tarantino would do is take a bunch of terrible people and put them in a movie together, <laughs> and that's kind of what Gone Girl is. Yes, absolutely. Because bad people are more interesting. That's that's the... super interesting. Even Neil Patrick Harris, who yeah. is sir creeps a lot in this movie. He yeah. really, for such an affable guy, he pulls off creepy just with with perfection yeah um and then he gets his throat slit in a scene that so to liz walked out of the room she can't that's a scene she has not seen in either viewing of the film she closed her eyes the first time Mm -hmm. and she left the room for this one she said that even being outside of the room hearing the music was she said was equally horrific the music was so on point for that murder (laughs) That it moved her in another room of the house. Mm -hmm. It was so great. And I really, we're talking about the narratives. I, it was great whenever we get a flashback and Trent Reznor just rises up from behind a piece of furniture and just starts laying down these (laughs) creepy, creepy tones. Yeah. I mean, it really sets a mood throughout the whole thing that this ephemera and it felt almost del toro-esque because it's it feels kind of ephemeral with the telling of it Hmm. but it's really like there's a dark side to it there is a dark secret in these woods what do you mean by ephemeral uh the the notion that you're being told about this scene and that it may be unreliable may or maybe yeah the unreliable narrator yeah um and the music is conveying that which is impressive yeah i mean uh, trent reznor and atticus ross we didn't talk about it uh in last week's show but they've they've scored they scored the last three fincher movies yeah um and i want to pick up because i've listened to the social network soundtrack over it's like background music for me i I listen to it all the time (laughs) yeah i'm working and stuff but i need to get on board with girl with the dragon tattoo and gone girl as well because they just have a great way of setting a mood and uh and a atmosphere for a film and it's so interesting to me because these three movies are fairly different i feel like there's a lot of commonality between a girl the girl with the dragon tattoo and gone girl but the social network is just about a bunch of nerds and (laughs) uh great summary (laughs) <laughs> yep <laughs> a movie about a bunch of nerds and uh and and yet the the music is still very similar and when i look back on these three films the tone is kind of similar for it, the three movies even though they are about completely different things in what in what way how would you describe the tone fincher's just got a way of um i would call it needling you like he uses really muted tones. He uses dim lighting mm-hmm. and he's done that ever since the game basically. Yeah. Um, and just really kind of dim lighting and that dim orange light, yeah, uh, kind his of a light sepia taste. Yeah. But it's actually, it's really cool because it's much more, um, it's much more akin to what you actually see with your eyes than what we see in cinema. Most of, I mean, he breaks so many rules of lighting, <laughs> you know, like things are supposed yeah. to be well lit, brightly lit. You're supposed to be able to see everything on the screen. Um, for him, if you could just throw like a, a, like a, just a light bulb in the corner and have some orange light shining through and maybe we'll be able to see something through the shadows. That's a Fincher thing. So it's interesting because it gives you darkness, it, but it also gives you softness and it gives you familiarity. Because it is what you really see with your eyes. It's more akin to what you actually see with your eyes. Um, so that's happening. And then at the same time, there's these, you know, plotting electronic musical tones mm-hmm. that just kind of drone throughout the movie and are kind of ever present and omnipotent. But they have ways of tweaking themselves to add or relieve suspense while we're doing this. So when I say that the tone is similar over these three films, what I mean is that David Fincher has a way of giving you the familiar and comfortable and then slowly 
pushing in suspense and uneasiness. And those two things are so hand-in-hand throughout his movies that it gives it all a very similar tone no matter what it's about. Like, there is an uneasiness in The Social Network, even though there's no stakes. (laughs) (laughs) We we all know how it ends. (laughs) Exactly. I think that's a good... I think you're right. And I like the use of the word softness because that is... I'm just trying to think, with all of these movies, there are very, very limited jump scares. Oh, yeah. If, even in Girl with a Dragon, to, even the moments where the the protagonist gets ambushed, we watch it coming, I think, in yeah. all of the instances. Like, we watch the person loom behind them and whack them over the head or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, I think that you're right. He builds the suspense in a way that is, you watch it coming and there's it's almost more interesting than the jump scare because it's like the slow motion train wreck and all you can do is just go you can text somebody dude this movie is fucked up because (laughs) you've got time to get a text out before before rosamund pike jumps you and murders you and sets you up perfectly crazy dude this film is so crazy on everybody in it (laughs) yeah we're we're talking we're focusing on rosamund pike Ben Affleck, I think he does a great job of playing this guy who catches on, mm-hmm. kind of walks us through the mystery. We get his sister, Margot, yep. who, thank you, Davey Mack, for pointing out that she was on The Leftovers. I could not put my finger mm-hmm. on it, and I just read the Bald Move forums before I got to IMDb, and she's in The Leftovers, and she's great in that. The The detective yeah. is one of my favorite favorite characters and i think one of my favorite characters out of the fincher movies because Mm. she is this reincarnation of tommy lee jones from the fugitive (laughs) she just does it she's skeptical with every she just doesn't care she's doing her job it's not personal (laughs) yeah i'm innocent i don't care (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) ben affleck should have shouted i didn't kill my wife and she go i don't care (laughs) i still gotta bring you in well, but that's, uh, yeah. everybody, I thought the whole, even uh, Amy's parents were mm-hmm. just, I mean, you they just oozed that overbearingness that right. we don't ever really see them I'm trying to think. Of, we, I think there's a moment or two where we get a little bit of their overbearing, but they're never like, ah, they, it's really all anecdotal that really makes us dislike them. Well, there's there's some small things. I feel like uh, microaggressions. Yeah, I f- and I feel like um, the father had a little bit of a slur to his speech that you usually would find on an older gentleman who has hit the bottle a little hard. Um, so I think that there's a little bit of a story there. I also think that there's the scene when Ben Affleck is uh, going out to catch Amy's mother as, as they're doing the sweep by the river. And yeah. she goes, this place literally smells like feces. <laughs> you could tell that Missouri is like the last place that these hoity-toity New Yorkers want to be. Yeah. Um, so. I There's do tiny moments. And that, you know, and they're things. the ones that raided her trust fund. Yeah. Uh, because they were in debt, which was pretty rough. But you, then you get the scenes where they're. Hug, you know, the dad's pulling Ben Affleck in for a hug, like, we're gonna get through this. Or, mm-hmm. you know, when they get up and they give, they've, they're really prepared to give speeches for Amy Missing. And in some ways it comes across as contrived, but in other ways it's better than Ben Affleck gave in that speech <laughs> where he's like, please help me find my wife. And that's it. And he's done. So yeah. it, it was a, a little bit of a roller coaster, and I thought they they played it well. They walked the the balance beam where you don't. It's hard to outright hate them. <laughs> you just don't like them. You just don't uh, like it. But they they do so much. I mean, during the even during the courting scenes between Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike in this, uh, they are insufferable. Like <laughs> they are just a couple of hoity toity dum dums that I just can't. Uh, they're so insufferable. Like their first meeting when they're just like, oh, blah, 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 blah. Oh, aren't we clever and smart? Blah, blah. Like, and fuck you guys. You guys deserve each other. Like, uh, I don't know. It's like they're, they're just both, um, 
I mean, they both have a really weird kind of vein. I mean, they both have a, they both have a vanity to them. I mean, he works for presumably GQ or a magazine like that, mm-hmm. uh, which is all about kind of outward appearance, and she lives off of a trust fund from her parents writing books about her. Yeah. So they're both really superficial on the surface type of people. And I guess the question that the movie asks us to answer is when you are a hundred percent on the surface, what does that do? What do you do with your empty soul? (laughs) And you fill it with murder. Yeah. You fill it with either murder or pass the time. Well, because when I've watched this movie the first time, it super frustrated me because why, why does he stay with her? At the end? <laughs> why? It just, it irked me so much. It's like, this woman is a literal murderer and yeah. you're going to sleep in the same bed as her when you know that she slit the throat of another dude. <laughs> uh, and like, just why, just why? But then there's the scene in this movie when he's like, at the end when he like slams her up against the bathroom wall and she says to him, you know, you, you were always at your, you were always at your best when you were trying to be that person, you know, that you weren't for me. Mm -hmm. And that, I feel like that was the turning point moment for him when he's like, she's right. I'm at my best when I'm trying to strive to be this person and kind of, live this outward appearance and then you know he's got the lifetime movie he's got the book deal he's got the franchise on the bars he's got fame um he's back they're back on their feet financially they're starting a family together it just is this thing of i think that's the answer is that these are two superficial surface level people and what do they do with their empty souls well i guess that's what makes them soulmates because they go, both got a black hole in the middle of them. <laughs> they just got a vacuum sucking all matter and light into their bodies. <laughs> well, yeah. and you really... She... Amy makes a legitimately frightening point mm-hmm. when she comes back and she goes, the, the man I saw on the TV, that's what I signed up for. That's what I want. Yeah. And it's scary, yeah. but... She is very specific, and this is where we talk about motivation. It's very specific what she wants. She wants the guy that she started with, and anything less, she will leave in a ditch somewhere. Right. And now she has more than enough evidence that when this thing goes south, she can just be like, nope, he went crazy, I shot him. (laughs) And everybody will just, the only people who will know will be the detective, Margot, and Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry. Who will just laugh it off. Because he's like, oh, I guess you he guys was deserve- right. I mean, he's right. He when Tyler Perry at the end of the movie when he says, "You guys deserve each other," he's yeah. completely right in some ways. I mean, I still don't think. I just think Ben Affleck's a big dumb dumb head. Yeah, and he's ultimately the dunce. He's a total dunce, and you know, he's an emotion. He's basically an emotionless person who knows how to put on the right act at the right time, and that's why he knew. Uh, you know, when they were prepping for the interview and his mistress goes on TV right before they're going to do the interview and reveals the whole thing. And Tyler Perry's like, dude, you cannot do this interview right now. We're not ahead of the story anymore. Being reactionary, we're on the defense. He's like, let me do this because all I got to do is convince one person. And he knows the act because he's lived the act. He knows the act that is going to convince that one person. And it ultimately does. That's why I think the storytelling beats in this thing are very, um, just very well done in that everything is character development. We start by looking through a peephole at these people and only witnessing their their superficial love affair at the beginning of their romance. And we slowly, slowly, slowly peel the layers back over and over and over. And this is just two and a half hours of character development until we get to the end uh, and we then they realize this place that that they deserve and that they built for one another. <laughs> it really is a uh, it's such a good. I really this is you know looking back over the list of movies, it's going to be hard hmm. to rank. You know because all of this is Fincher's. He curates so well these movies that yeah. have the most interesting characters. Mm-hmm. And then he brings his abilities to these. I mean, just 
some of the shots in this film, the way that the music comes in and out, yeah, he's bringing together this train of specialists. And at this point, he's got his pick of the litter. Yeah, he can <laughs> so do whatever he, just he wants. Puts yeah. together this perfect movie making machine, and <laughs> he just has the vision. This, like you said, he is able to somehow reproduce what feels very much like the human eye uh-huh. in film in a way that. Yep. It's, I think, technically, I can't begin to fathom what it takes. Yeah. I have well, a hard enough time taking pictures with my phone. I think it takes a really good cinematographer. But, uh, I, you know, I, I think that the quality is there. And that, I think that's what you're talking about here. I think when you talk about David Fincher, the, the first word that comes to me is just quality. He is just a goddamn quality filmmaker. I'm so astounded at Alien 3. I really mm-hmm. am. Like, now that we've been through every single feature <laughs> film that David Fincher has directed, I am so astounded at Alien 3. But it is such a such an interesting thing, and it's really inspiring in some ways. Because it was such a shit show. Uh-huh. And yet he rose from those ashes and made seven, and has been hitting home runs ever since. I mean... Yeah, he doesn't take a break. He doesn't take a break. Now, when it comes to ranking these movies, I don't think that Gone Girl's in my top three easily. It's easily not in my top three. Um, just because I have some problems with the pacing and uh, I don't know. It's just it's a, it, it gets into this thing that I actually have a problem with with House of Cards, which is why I quit watching House of Cards after three seasons. Um, it's kind of reminiscent of some of the things that, that, uh, that are happening there, but we'll talk about that next week when we do our bonus. Yeah. House bonus. Of Cards this will be the first Fincher thing I haven't seen. Hmm. Um, but, but yeah, it's just, it's just a little too melodramatic for me. I mean, it is a lifetime movie for the first hour until Rosamund Pike shows up. It's a lifetime movie. It's a, this guy killed his wife and he's covering it up and we're going to go through this. Um, so, I mean, that twist is what makes it different. And, and that's what's interesting. and That's what's admirable about it. But David Fincher, like you said, he's such a high quality director that I think sometimes he can mask the, melodra- the melodramatic nature of his material through the quality of the output. Um. But a lot of these things distill down to a soap opera plot. He's just has he has such a, a touch of quality to everything that he does that he is able to mask it in a really engaging and entertaining way. Yeah, um, and that elevates you, it. You know, I would be I would love to see what somebody else would do with this film because I hmm. wonder how much he is able to pull out of Gillian Flynn's work. If you go yeah. if you read the uh Davey Mack posted just a lovely novel of mm-hmm. references on the forums. Uh, yep. I'm going to just read just the tail end of this. This is pulled from a quote by Gillian Flynn uh-huh. in response to the character Amy as anti-feminist. Yep. And the, and Gillian Flynn writes, there's still a big pushback against the idea that women can be just pragmatically evil, bad, and selfish. I don't write psycho bitches. The psycho bitch is just crazy. She has no motive. Mm. And so she's a dismissible person because of her psycho bitchiness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk about the the evilness and the motivation of Amy. I wonder, in the hands of a less capable director, if it, yeah. if it does feel... If it's in some ways, if it's difficult to make Amy not look just crazy, I, right. You know, I would love to see where it is that, because it, Fincher has this advantage of it's the, what's the, the saying when everything goes right, nobody notices. Mm-hmm. And so there's so much that is just quality in his films that it is in some ways difficult to start pulling out particular moments because everything's woven together. It's just a solid movie. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if there were cracks in this that the characters don't, if their motivations start to peel back a little bit, you don't see them so much as intelligent as they are just psychotic. Like you said, like everybody in this movie is out of their mind. (laughs) Um, and Fincher happens to make them feel grounded in their, mild insanity even his yep. 
college uh, student girlfriend is, I mean, she really teeters on that, like, that realm, I think, where it would be easy to label her as nuts. But yeah. she's really in a very emotional one. She's at that age where just emotionally everybody's unstable. Um, she has a man telling her he's going to divorce his wife and leave her for the young college girl, which is something that's emotionally misleading. And so, you know, she has all these things and then he's leading her on. He has just lost his wife and she's, he's still sleeping with her. And then Mm -hmm. he gets up in front of a crowd with her in it and says, I love my wife. I just want her back. You know, that's a, he has created that time bomb. That is entirely his fault. And she is well within her rights emotionally to reach the level that she does. And I think it's, would be easy to mislabel that in the hands of somebody who does not. What do you mean by reach the label she does? Um, I think that it would be easy for a director to just show her come in. She's already high strung. Uh-huh. Oh, and yeah. And then to show her on TV mm-hmm. kind of, you know, just all, you know, with the crying, with the act that she kind of puts on, even for mm-hmm. the TV where, and Amy pointed out too, why is she dressed like a Mennonite? Yeah. Um, after everything that has occurred, I think that there are a lot of subtle moments to her character in the mm-hmm. way that she comes in, in the way that Ben Affleck gets her to, how he gets her to leave, how Margot reacts to it. Yeah. Um, and then when he's telling this crowd and it cuts to her being hurt by his words, mm-hmm. I think there are just tiny highlighted moments that really flesh out a character that is only on screen for four minutes, maybe. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the other thing that that gets to though, that I think this movie has a big message about is the show of the criminal justice system mm-hmm. and how destructive that is. Yeah. <laughs> and how ridiculous it is. I mean, we talked about making a murderer, which explores that in really interesting terms. I mean, there's a lot of coverage about the media in that documentary series uh, surrounding the, the murder case at the center of the story. Um, and the Anad Syed serial podcast uh, is very similar, covering all the media coverage and how you know, the, the Nancy Grace character in Gone Girl, how she covers yeah. all of this stuff. It's really interesting to me because thinking about it a little bit more, you know, as we look at these two characters, uh, Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike's characters in this movie, um, they are these superficial, on-the-surface type of people. And the, the person that they present to everybody is completely different from the person underneath. And... It's very similar. I, I feel like that rolls right into the commentary of the show that surrounds these types of events. Uh, you only get that superficial layer. You only get the superficial layer. I mean, I think that there's a lot in here about fetishizing tragedy, um, where something terrible happens and everybody wants to see how they can make it about them. <laughs> it's just like, but how can I make this about me? You know, there's a woman is uh, kidnapped and presumed murdered. How can I make this about me? How can I put this on Facebook to let people know that I am uh, against kidnapping? I mean, like, really? Do you have to, like, let people know? Um, there, and there's there's the idea of it that really this is, a, this is a – this should be a small-time thing. This should be a, a quiet uh, tragedy for a family. And yet it becomes this huge public thing, mostly because of the amazing AV angle to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can see that a lot of the case probably would have unfolded completely differently had this been a small kidnapping or suspected murder case Mm -hmm. in a police department without all of the media scrutiny on top of it. Um, And it's it's something that the, the commentary of the show that is associated with these real life tragic events is really, really interesting. And I love how it's covered in this. <laughs> I love how it's covered in this movie. And this was prior to serial, right? This yeah. serial was 2015. Mm-hmm. And this was right. Yeah, this, this is, is 2014. Uh, yeah. I think you're, and it's, 
and yeah, we we had a big discussion about that the nature of the problem with it being that we all see the superficial and then we start to develop our own yeah narratives and this movie gets very much behind it mm-hmm. <laughs> shows you this is what they're talking about when they close the door he's throwing her up against the wall going what did you do yeah uh so i i agree that there's a, a theme and this movie is a little is just a, a little ahead of the curve and now <laughs> i mean we've got night of on hbo i'm yeah Law and Order and CSI have been around forever, so people do, yeah. do love that. I mean, this is a Law and Order episode. It's just done really well. Yeah, you know, it, that, that's we, the thing. It's it's just high quality, and that's that's actually we'll get to it next week. But that's what ultimately turned me off to House of Cards. Is I feel like as Fincher got further and further away from House of Cards and its melodramatic nature kept unfolding. It was like, okay, this is just getting ridiculous at this point. And once the quality of the of the filmmaking started to dip, then the then the you know the warts started to show a little bit. Um, so I, it really does speak to Fincher as a filmmaker that he's able to you know keep this high standard of quality around this plot that's you know it's pretty ridiculous in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, but I really, it, am- but it's it's really it's enjoyable and it's it's engrossing. I enjoyed Detective Boney and her partner, her partner who is just immediately convinced that yep. Ben Affleck did it. And then yep. at some point later when Ben Affleck points out that he definitely didn't do it and the guy just brushes him aside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even in the end, when the yeah. <laughs> the detective is telling him, I can't, there's nothing I can do. This is all sewn up. Uh-huh. That's, not, that's not something you usually get at the end of the movie Although we got it a little bit with Zodiac, you know, yeah. Zodiac ends with the de- the detective de- does not and cannot get his man because yep. of the way the the justice system works, and mm-hmm. really the only place we get satisfaction is in Dirty Harry, where they shoot the Zodiac <laughs> killer, uh, uh, and Seven ultimately Kevin Spacey gets shot, which is yeah, but it fulfills some his... small. Yeah, it does fulfill its, its prophecy. Yeah, it's 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 an empty victory. It's it's what we talked about in the Tarantino films because Tarantino films are so fueled by revenge mm-hmm. that, uh, but like what to what end? You know, it's great to kill Bill at the end of Kill Bill, but to what end? Like, is that is that the ultimate justice? I mean, there there are studies out there like people who have gotten revenge are actually. Uh, feel less fulfilled than they did before they got their revenge. Um, it's an interesting human trait here. It feels really good to have that vengeance moment, but at the same time, you many, many times you are simply mirroring the behavior of the one who, um, who, uh, you know, uh, injured you or, you know, who did harm to you, you're, you're now doing harm to them. So you're just mirroring their behavior. It's this idea of, are you putting yourself just in their place in order? And, and, and is that justified? You know, that's the big question. Um, and you know, so, Amy's shooting for that revenge to begin yeah. with because she's going to kill herself. And ultimately, mm-hmm. and that's the nice thing about when we jump to her is that she is, you know, she lets go of the pen out the window, she's leaving the old life behind. She goes through this great, uh, another Fincher montage, character montage, but now we get it as the character is trying to become somebody else who is ultimately going to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, it's odd because it is as if she no longer wants revenge. She's, she's decided that that route is not for her. Yeah. And she kind of turns it around and, I mean, for her, that is a win in her non-revenge, which is <laughs> really weird. It's yeah. weird to discuss a, a villain as the winner. I'm she yeah. definitely, and yeah. not that you really feel that bad for Ben Affleck because he is a hollow man as well. Mm. So I, I definitely feel bad for him. I, <laughs> I don't think that he's making the right choice here. I'm with I like, his, his. I love I love having a voice of reason in these in in a movie. Like having that voice of reason character is really good. And Margot in this movie is the voice of reason character. 
She is the one who is there to echo what the audience is actually thinking at all times. And to see her curled up on the floor being like, why are you staying with her at the end of the movie? Is uh, is mirroring what you what I what I was experiencing as an audience member. Uh, it just does not make sense why he would stay with her. But he, he's got to do it. It's it's kind of his only course as a character. And there's something about making that about them being twins mm-hmm. that yeah. we see. She is the other half of his consciousness, right? and as a we as the audience are, she is a little bit of that Greek chorus element where she is. You know, speaking the mind of the audience at the same time, she is part of Ben Affleck, and mm-hmm. so I don't know why I said it's so like the insurance company. Um, but the, you know, they are to the it it helps to f- the audience to feel as if they are partially, you know, related. And I think that was yeah. I think you're right. I think that scene, especially, I mean, she just kills it on the up against the the cabinets yeah you know head in her hands just yeah totally torn. that is a hard emotion to display (laughs) i will back you up in this life ending action that you are taking yeah it's it's pretty insane um i mean i feel like he's got outs that's the crazy thing about it like he's got outs is it like killing her for their next anniversary no he doesn't kill her (laughs) like but, but he could leave and that's the funny thing about it. Like he is so superficial that he doesn't want to be painted as a bad guy. Well, he's also like, thinking he about his want... unborn child, right? That's the that's kind of the main thing. Although, is it implied that she got the semen from the bank? Yeah. So okay, when he she didn't destroy it mm-hmm. because she's been six steps ahead this whole time. Yeah. Oh, she always has a backup plan, and it's frustratingly ruthless. It is, yeah. It's, it's so efficient. It's really efficient. It's interesting to me, too, because uh, we talked about this when we were covering um, Tarantino, and we, I don't know I keep on talking about Tarantino in this one, but it's kind of interesting because we've, we've now seen all of David Fincher's films, and it's interesting to look back at them um, in the same way that we've done with Tarantino. Mm-hmm. But Tarantino, you know, we had Inglorious Bastards and we had Django Unchained, and Christoph Waltz kind of plays a very similar character in both of those, except in one he's evil and in one he's good. Uh, you know, obviously yeah. Londa's extremely evil, <laughs> but King Schultz is probably my favorite Tarantino character mm-hmm. because he is the moral compass yeah. for the film, um, and like ultimately can't even stomach letting Candy continue to live even at his own. Uh, even under the threat of his own like imminent demise, yeah, he's got to kill Candy. He's mythologically heroic. He is, yeah. So really cool there, and and they're but they're very similar in that they're both really smart. Uh, they're both a step ahead of everybody. Um, they're both kind of playing a part. They do they do a really good job of kind of having the flip of the coin for both of those characters. Fincher is very similar in that. In Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and in Gone Girl, I feel like Amy and Lisbeth are kind of two sides of one coin. Oh. Because they're both crazy. <laughs> you know? Uh, Lisbeth, like, says it. She's like, you know, what yeah, do people say about of, me? like, medically uh, determined to be. Yeah. 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 She's, like, certifiable. Um, and yet she ultimately has this compass for justice... And for, you know, bringing people to justice. And uh, Amy basically is there to exploit the justice system in order to ha- to enact petty revenge. Uh, well, even to just achieve her. She is yeah. constantly tacking like a boat to yeah. whatever is her best ends. And yeah. she is prepared enough to do that in... Some really dramatic fashions from (laughs) I'm going to kill myself to, nope, better plan. I'm going to kill Neil Patrick Harris and get back with Ben Affleck. Yeah, and it's interesting because whereas Lisbeth is basically fighting against the system at all times in her pursuit for justice, uh, Amy is exploiting the system at all times in her pursuit for petty vengeance. Yeah, she plays it like a violin. Yeah, and I think that, and like we talk about revenge, the revenge scene in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo 
is co- completely justified. And I feel like there is catharsis after that. You're like, fuck yeah, that guy got exactly what he deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet this movie, a gone girl brings us back to that conversation of whether vengeance is actually a good course or not. Um, yeah, there's, it's so, I think it's really interesting to look at these two characters in back to back venture films. Well, and bringing in the Tarantino aspect of it, most mm-hmm. of the villains, regardless of how intelligent receive some form of punishment in the end. Yep. Hans Landa gets a swastika carved into his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the real bad guy, uh, uh, I can't remember what DiCaprio's Ooh. name was. You know, Candy? he, he bites it and it costs, uh, Christoph Waltz his life for that action, yeah. but he Candy. definitely, his he gets Candy. him. He gets Candy. Yeah. Um, in this one, there is no real recourse for Amy, which is, yeah. And you think back to, to Zodiac. He escapes. Yep, you think escapes. back to seven. Mm-hmm. He uh, gets what he wants. He gets what he wants in yep. dying. Mm-hmm. Um, even in a situation like uh, Fight Club, mm-hmm. I mean, we we get Brad Pitt, but he also blows up the financial system, and ultimately right. he is Tyler Durden. So there's an right. odd sort of. <laughs> almost a it's yeah. an escape clause the die is cast i am still you yeah so you're welcome well and in like uh even girl with the dragon tattoo um lisbeth isn't actually the one who uh brings the dude to his end he kind of loses control of his own car and crashes into a gas station yeah uh yeah fincher's got a knack for not for you know bad endings <laughs> i mean then <laughs> i don't mean that in like the endings are bad but the bad guy wins endings i mean yeah even the social network uh you know wait which way <laughs> well in many ways mark zuckerberg is a turns out to be kind of a villain in that movie in the same way that uh a, you know i don't mean to keep bringing back uh halt and catch fire which is the show that i watch and do podcasts about on bald move or similarly something like breaking bad or something like bad men where the main where the characters are their biggest antagonists Mm -hmm. their biggest antagonists are personal and like with the social network the growth that zuckerberg goes through is non-existent from the beginning of the film to the end of the film like all he's trying to do is get the approval of other people um so it's you know, he's he's got this Fincher's got this knack for people not changing. I mean, even the game. Like at the at the end of the game <laughs> The guy doesn't change at all. He doesn't. He immediately starts hitting well, depends on how you quantify the fact that he immediately goes and hits on the girl that just led him on a death defying chase yeah. through the city. Yeah, I mean he goes yeah, he yeah, but he, the villains, the he, vi- the supposed villain of the film, there is no punishment because in the yeah. end, <laughs> there is no villain. You're welcome. We did that for you. Yeah, so that's a. I think that's a Fincherism is that the villain wins. The villain gets what they want. Well, and from what little I know of House of Cards, mm-hmm. Kevin Spacey's basically the villain, and he pretty much yeah. he's also the protagonist. Yeah, he's the protagonist. I mean. They do a pretty good job in that show to, like, I I have a lot of respect for shows like Breaking Bad, where the main character is incredibly horrible, mm-hmm. and yet you they still find a way for you to root for them. Uh, Breaking Bad's that way. Don Draper and Mad Men is totally yeah, that way. Super. <laughs> uh, and uh, House of Cards is similar. Like you somehow want him to succeed, and maybe that's why. We'll talk about House of Cards next week. But <laughs> Walking Dead would be a lot better if they did that. If they, if, if they, they had, if everybody was really just a villain, and you mm-hmm. wanted them to succeed despite that. Yeah, not That's that I've we, watched that show in two seasons, but it's a great, it's a great, uh, it's a great character that is flawed and yeah. whose antagonist is really himself. I think that that. It, it just makes for really interesting, you know, shows. We talked about with Tarantino, we mentioned it earlier on this podcast. Bad people are interesting. Yep. And that's yeah. one thing with all of the directors, I think. Yeah. Well, Edgar Wright, does he really? 
have uh, interesting vill- I guess the the seven X's No, but I mean in Edgar Wright basically everybody is rebelling against nostalgia of adolescence. Yeah, it's a That's, different theme overall, I guess. It, yeah, his his movies have a little bit of a different theme running through them. Um but uh, and then, you know, Guillermo del Toro obviously has the the uh human the human monsters and the yeah, monsters. Yeah, we are humans. the <laughs> Yeah. We're the so, villains. The monsters are always kind of sad and depressed, and the humans are the ones who are really evil in his films. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the the bad people are interesting thing keeps going on, but I but really in this retrospective, the the bad guy wins in Fincher films. Yeah, and so. that's what I think makes it really compelling. We don't get yeah. it that often. Yeah. We especially now, like we have franchises popping up that are. <laughs> Built around the idea that the good guys are going to win every time. Right. Um, and they just cannot, you know, especially for Marvel, for all the people that they have in their films, they cannot bring themselves to kill those fools. <laughs> Not even give us like one or two. I um, know. But they couldn't even kill one in Civil. Like War Machine. Like really yeah. nice. Like, I really thought they were going to just kill him. And I was like, all right, you're learning. You're getting there. Let's work on it. Yeah. Um, so well, we'll see you where can't that say goes. that about BVS, though. Spoiler alert. BVS put it all out there. Yeah, except we know he's coming back for... Why the hell do we keep talking about Batman versus Superman? Because, yeah, that's unfortunately telling. Are we going to have to do Zack Snyder? Mm, I don't know. You know what? I would like to. I think that, one, we try and st- steer away from the negative, so I think it would be... An interesting challenge to discuss Zack Snyder in a positive light and to look at the good he's side got of his a lot work. Of, he's got good movies. Dude. He's got good movies and he does some very interesting things and I think yeah. stylistically he is at the, I think it, he's gotten himself into a rut but I think mm-hmm. when he started I'd love to watch that trajectory as he kind of yeah. reaches peak comic book because not comic book in the sense of yeah. material but comic book in the sense of style well, it's, it's really is, it's really three hundred. I mean, three hundred is kind of the movie that defined the rest of his career. Yeah, in many ways. But also, like the Dawn of the Dead remake is super cool, super good. I watch that probably once a year. Yeah, and Dawn I always forget it's Zack Snyder. I mean, the peak Snyder in Snyder is Sucker Punch for sure. That's you can just watch Snyder. through Sucker Punch and call it. A day. I don't know. Uh, but let's get back to Fincher. So this yeah. is the funny thing about this, Levi, is that I have five pages of notes. We haven't even started. I haven't, yes. even, I haven't even looked at my notes. This We've been time. too busy talking about vil- – I, yeah, I have the – my favorite note here, I'll just hit my one, was yeah. a thing I took from Fincher in an interview where he said that this is essentially three different movies. It mm-hmm. starts as a mystery and then – you know, there's yeah. the drop. Amy's alive. Now it's a yeah. thriller. Yeah, because we're following Ben Affleck trying to figure out before he gets arrested and put to the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And then the last section is just satire. It's just, oh, it's just so painful to watch. Yeah. But it's well, it's melodrama. Yeah, it and it's, it's not really satire. It's more melodrama. So. Um, and I think that's a great summation yeah, of I mean, the flow of this movie. Like, why the fuck don't they wipe the blood off? Why don't they clean the blood off of her in the <laughs> hospital? Like, give the give the lady a sponge bath. You know, I wonder how easy it is, though. I feel like I've yeah. had cuts before, and, like, I go and, like, wash it, and it's, like, Dude, still red. I feel like you really... If there's one place that knows how to clean blood, it's a hospital. Yeah. I'm just saying. Like, give the lady a sponge bath. It's <laughs> The other thing, like, there's so many things that if they just investigated a little bit they would know like oh she doesn't actually have a blunt force wound like that's not going to go away in three weeks yeah if you if you had a blunt force trauma to the head and you bled out all over the floor and you lost pints of blood you're not gonna freaking not have any marks of that three weeks later um the blood was weird mm -hmm. you just yeah like why that was a lot of blood on the floor for one yeah, um, I'm pretty sure you faint when you get up to those. 
It'd be really dumb if you were trying to set up this whole thing and you passed out while well, trying to frame it. Presumably, presumably she did it after. I don't know. I I thought that she like saved the blood. But anyway, uh, there you're right. There are like the the last act of this movie is very melodramatic. Like the fact that she walks around covered in the blood of Neil Patrick Harris <laughs> after she leaves the hospital is just and that scene of them coming back to the house uh, and her in her you know she, I think she's wearing like hospital scrubs at that point for some reason uh, and oh when she uh, gets out of the car yeah and they're no walking. she's wearing like the negligee from like having no, 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 sex I'm with about the... when she comes back to the, oh at the she end comes back from the hospital yeah and they turn around and they wave to the reporters and she's still covered in blood yep it's very melodramatic but like <laughs> we said it's the quality man it is the fincher quality like that is the one thing i'm going to take away from this fincher watch is that he is just so high quality as a director that he's going to take the material and he's going to he's going to elevate it he's going to take it to the top that it can possibly be, and that's why his movies have been home runs since his second film. Over twenty years, his movies are just—they just—they just do it, man. They just do it. <laughs> I so, wanted to do another Alien movie so bad. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. Do it right, I think his well, the Alien's his definitely going to master win. mastery of lighting. Yeah. I think he's got the idea. If the the villain can win, that's the perfect thing for an alien movie. Yep. Just let him redo it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll talk about what we what we hope he does next uh, in the wrap up cast. But before we do that, we're going to uh, do a bonus direct and House watch the first. The, yeah, the first two episodes of House of Cards. Breaking our rules. Watching Breaking some the TV. Rules. Well, you know, it's it's almost a feature film. It's like an hour and a half. We do what we want. Um, ball move and uh, and so we're going to do that next week so please keep in touch forums.ballmove.com and directpodcast at gmail.com we want to get your take on the first two episodes of House of Cards and until then I'm Eric I'm Levi cut